1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: And I want to thank you all for coming today, and welcome to our January Conservative Women's Network Luncheon. I wanna give a special thank you to the Heritage Foundation and and those of you here at Heritage that we've worked with on this luncheon. It's been a wonderful partnership now, once a month for 20 years. And we love coming here to Heritage and uh, working with great women speakers like we have today. And we do have great speakers today. Two authors who are gonna give their take on the great society, an era that provides lessons for us today as some debate, socialism versus capitalism again. And there's actually a few of us here, like me, who are old enough to have lived during the, that era. I was in high school and it was uh, actually when I inspired me to become uh, active in the policy debate uh, with Senator Goldwater and Linda Baines Johnson. So let me uh, introduce uh, the two speakers. And then uh, Amity is going to speak briefly, and then they're going to come down here in the chairs and have a have a great discussion. Amity Shales is a renowned historian and author who details in her new book, Great Society and New History, that the results of the Great Society were far from great. They were devastating. Amity devoted years of research to the Great Society and is a veteran columnist. She chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, chairs the jury for the Manhattan Institute's Hayek Book Prize, which is a $50,000 prize. She served on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. She studied undergrad at Yale, and uh, is a fellow at Freie University, University of Berlin, um, and she has an honorary doctorate from South Dakota School of Mines. I could go on, but that's enough. That's wonderful. And she's the author of four other New York Times bestsellers. I'm going to name them The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, The Forgotten Man Graphic Edition, Coolidge, and The Greedy Hand. Now, I also want to introduce Lindsay Burke, the director of the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay oversees the foundation's research and policy on issues about preschool, about kindergarten to 12th grade education, and higher education reform. Her commentary, research, and op-eds have appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers. She's a frequent guest on radio and television shows and speaks on education reform issues across the country and internationally. She has a bachelor's degree in politics from Holland University in Roanoke, Virginia, a master's of teaching in foreign language education from the University of Virginia, and a PhD in education policy from George Mason University, where she examined the intersection of education choice and institutional theory. She's also co-editor of the book, The Not-So-Great Society, published by the Heritage Foundation, and uh, I think we have some copies of that outside afterwards. Also, we're gonna be selling um, we're gonna be selling Amity's book outside for um, $15, I think. And if she's kind enough to sign, then we'd be very grateful for those of us who, uh, who buy a book. So now please uh, join me in welcoming for some brief remarks and then a discussion, Amity Schleels. Thank you.
2: I just want to ask one thing if someone could bring my book and I want to wave it around to give me give me some courage but I don't need much with such a friendly audience thank you Mrs. Easton and thank you Lindsay uh, my ally and partner in great society studies Um, it's an election year um, and one of the things we all weigh in an election year is Where do we put our energy? Do we put our energy, thank you, in the election, or do we put our energy in long causes? And long causes uh, are very dubious because sometimes uh, if you plant a seed, it, it, it may or may not come to fruition. And if it does come to fruition, it might be after we're dead and forgotten, right? So so, why, uh, especially when there's so many imperatives and so much trouble now. So very briefly, um, and then I'm going to speak with Lindsay because our books are parallel, and we want to leave a lot of time for you to ask questions um, and, and offer your own opinions. I want to tell the story of a lost cause that um, is in this book. That story is the story of an executive, at general electric named Lemuel. Even his name was ridiculous. His name was Lemuel. Ricketts be, be so you can imagine the jokes off that, so, um, and he was a senior executive at General Electric, which was a beautiful, pristine company, kind of a model, model um, in the 50s of what was right about America. When we built an American kitchen in Moscow in a kind of Cold War competition with the Soviet Union about standard of living, um we made several kitchens and the lemon yellow one was the GE kitchen with the GE appliances and and this is what so shocked leader Khrushchev uh the quality of our um of our sinks and dishwashers right and our our mixers um so imagine GE being not just American but being America and also about American innovation and the idea that um One person alone in a little lab, maybe it's a dump, can come up with an idea that changes the world. That would be Thomas Edison, one of the founders of General Electric, electric, a very private place, not much having to do with government. Lem Boulware worked at GE. He was in charge of labor relations, but he was also in charge of ideas. And he thought that um, the military-industrial complex was jeopardizing America because government was growing too much. President Eisenhower perhaps didn't understand um, at first how how much of a threat to the private sector expanding government was. Maybe Mr. Bulwer was grateful when when President Eisenhower just leaving office spoke of the military industrial complex and warned about it but generally speaking the America of the 1950s was an America of corporatism and work with government not independent of it if you were a business developer uh, for example in electronics you you couldn't imagine the future without the government as your customer right mr bullwear stood out because he wanted to teach Americans that America um, grows best when it grows in the private sector. Um, The other executives, you want to imagine a kind of mad men period, this would be the late 50s, early 60s, Um, He would go about preaching uh, that we would be through with everything we cherish in America if we we didn't recognize the importance of the private sector and get, get away from government. The other executives thought he was a fool. It was very obvious to them that cooperation was uh, the rule of the day. Uh, he was old, they didn't worry too much about him because Mr. bullwear was due for retirement and they thought off he would go to Delray Beach uh, and his, I don't know what, his lazy boy recliner. <laughs> And if he muttered on about free markets, well, he was a relic of the Cold War uh, early period, and now we were coming into the modern period, and uh, we had good parties, as in Mad Men, and we worked with government. Well, while he was there, at the very end, before he retired, bullwear determined to give uh, capitalism its greatest defense. Um, and he had a little propaganda mill, and he hired people, and he mimeographed pa- papers. Uh, to hand out to workers so they would understand um, that maybe our our union law was off in the United States and right to work might be important. Um, And individual education was important and he handed this out at all the plants. Um, and he hired an actor to talk it up, right, at the plants, kind of the rubber chicken plant circuit, and the actor um, spoke all about the importance of free markets. It happened the actor was a rock-rib Democrat, in fact, the head of a union, this Screen Actors Guild, but um, Bullware thought he might learn with time And the actor got a TV show which was GE Theater to talk about, um, to in a very, very low key way talk about the importance of American freedom. The actor played a Soviet major in one of the episodes of the TV show which sought to portray the oppression of uh, communism. Um, And all this is going along great except the other executives have a lot of contempt for bull never mind the actor whom they're embarrassed of, um, until all of a sudden GE gets in trouble. Um, it turns out the the Eisenhower and the Kennedy, this is late 50s, early 60s, Justice Department, investigate GE and they discover, lo and behold, GE, which is supposed to be pristine and calls itself capitalist, its, its salesmen were actually colluding with the salesmen of other electric companies to fix prices artificially high for customers such as the Tennessee Valley Authority, i.e. the government. Well, that's very embarrassing. You're going around preaching about free markets even as you're cheating the American taxpayer, right? That's what was going on. Um, And it was true, there was collusion, and GE gets hauled into court by none other um, in the end than the Attorney General, whose name is Kennedy, He's the brother of the president, and he doesn't have a very high opinion of this collusion. And the judge sends some GE executives to jail, which is unusual for antitrust at the time. Um, And the union leaders um, laughed their heads off. GE, that's supposed to be pristine, was cheating taxpayers. And the the head of the electric union, who had a great sense of humor, actually sent one of the GE executives in jail, the board game Monopoly, (laughs) to tease him. Um, and the, the company's all humiliated. And this little propaganda effort to teach about free markets kind of is, is collateral damage. And Mr. Bulwer does retire and the actor gets fired. And he goes home and tell, tells his son he you know he was fired because he was too free market and he got in trouble over talking uh, free market about the TVA. And this is all embarrassing and he has to go back to the acting world where he's a wash up. And Mr. Bulwer has a terrible... 1960s watching all the things that he foretold, all the dangers actually become reality in the Great Society, right? Because the Great Society was the 1960s effort to introduce social democracy in the United States. Everything Bulwer had warned about, there it was on TV, first in black and white, then in color, <laughs> He's <laughs> watching it, and he's watching people embrace ideas he had warned were foreign that could kill the United States. So it was a difficult retirement for Mr. Bulwer. And yet, um, the actor who had started out, a New Deal Democrat, actually had kind of become a convert. He had bought his son GE stocks, he decided he believed in capitalism, and he took all the speeches he gave at GE and began to give them in politics. And the first time he gave them, and some of you will know this, I'm certain our host, S. Will, um, was, uh, was in a speech for Barry Goldwater about called Time for Choosing. And basically that speech which was a very conservative speech in a not very conservative time and and treated as extreme, maybe it, it helped to lose Barry Goldwater the presidential election, was the GE speech. The actor was Ronald Reagan of course. And the speech was the GE speech that he had learned by giving it how many times? more than 100, before refining it about the importance of markets, the importance of freedom to choose, about the importance of private enterprise, and little men or women in little labs coming up with ideas all by themselves that could change the country. So um, eventually, as you know, Ronald Reagan moved into politics, and that's all in this Great Society book, because my book is about we want a great society, the only question is, how do we get it? Through the public sector or the private sector? Reagan thought through the private sector and eventually he ran for governor in the state of California and defended the private sector and corresponded with old Lem Bulware, his mentor. Um, and uh, if, even eventually, eventually, um, all the things he learned at GE that were funded by Lem faint effort became um, American policy, or most of them, right, became American policy. So this little investment, which is just like a charity investment any one of us would make through our time or funds in high school education, college education, um, books, supporting books or films, it seems paid off for bullware for GE, though it wasn't particularly grateful, exponentially in terms of policy in the United States. You look at, say, the Federalist Society or Heritage or common sense centrists or some of the Democratic Party, a lot of that came from all these little ideas Bullwear was mimeographing in 1960. Um, so that that's the end of the story. The point is that even little investments that you make in time, money, writing, whatever, it might pay off long after you're gone, and you will be remembered just as we remember Lem Boulware at this meeting. Thank you very much.
3: Great. Well, that was fascinating. I had not heard the story of Len Boulware. Was it Len or when? Lemuel. Lemuel. I will never remember that his name was Lemuel. Lem. Great. Yeah, we'll call him Lem. So a great story about Lem. Speaking of great stories, your book, Great Society, is a fantastic story. And by the way, these are not competing books, That's Great right. Society and Not-So-Great Society. They're quite complementary. These are complementary <laughs> books. <laughs> That's right. But you take an in-depth look at the people and the policies that shaped the Great Society, that made up the war on poverty. Um, we, we do the same thing, but we look specifically at the education, policy, components of the Great Society, and they were many. Most people, I think, are not aware of the fact that when Lyndon Johnson gave his 1964 State of the Union address, he said one-third of the war on poverty would be fought in the classrooms of America, and he said, there your children's lives will be shaped, so we think about it in terms of Medicaid and Medicare and welfare reform, but I think the education component gets lost quite frequently. So our books are different, but we actually start off with a similar story, uh, which is that of Michael Harrington, the socialist. Uh, At the time, Harrington had quite an influence, not only on LBJ, but on Kennedy before that. He had wrote a book that was widely read at the time called The Other America, and uh, basically making the, the case for socialism in that book. This is a 1962 bestseller. So... It's interesting because you had Harrington's perspective on socialism that was sort of gaining traction at the time, but then you had other folks like J.K. Galbraith, who had written a book preceding that called The Affluent Society, that made the exact opposite case, where Harrington was saying, well, poverty is getting worse, it's intractable. Galbraith said, no, actually, things are okay. So you had this conflicted vision at the time. So how did we get to the point, leading up to the Great Society, where more or less Harrington's vision of socialism sort of won out, if we look at all of the great society programs that Johnson promulgated?
2: Well, what's so similar, Lindsay, is the the sense of idealism. I really want to do something. I'm 16 years old, I'm 18 years old, I'm 22 years old. I really want to do something. I will fail if I don't do something. That's really wonderful that you start with that. There's nothing wrong with that. So Harrington was kind of the J.D. Vance of his period. You're familiar with Hillbilly Elegy. Um, And he actually looked at the same problem to start, which is Appalachia, and said, why is this region poor when, as a collective, or generally speaking, we are wealthy? Why is this region also not improving at the same rate? Why doesn't it have the lemon-yellow general electric kitchen? Um, That You know the phrase from the 1930s, the South is tired of living in the dark. Uh, Appalachia had that problem, and is it... Um, Harrington thought he was a socialist and I guess what's important to say is both Lindsay and I believe as Friedrich Hayek did that a little bit of socialism is dangerous. Um, it, you got, it, it's a, it grows incrementally like a coastal shelf building upon itself and eventually you get to genuine socialism when more than half of the economy is the government or more than half of the attitudes in the country are pro-government. Sometimes it's the resources, sometimes it's the resources plus the ideas. He was a very idealistic man. Um, nuts. If he were here you would like him uh, and he said well let's do something for the other America. Uh, Th- that's, where he, that's where he was. And as it happened, the way events played out, it probably would have been different had President Kennedy not died so tragically in 1963. Lyndon Johnson became president. And the number one thing of Lyndon Johnson was um, not idealism, though that was a bit, he was idealistic, it was ambition. And Johnson wanted to finish what Kennedy had promised and also do better than Kennedy the way anyone would. You don't make it to that level without a a good share of competitiveness. And also to finish someone who is far more influential intellectually uh, uh, upon Johnson, finish the work of that person, which is Franklin Roosevelt of the New Deal. Johnson was created by Franklin Roosevelt. He was his intellectual um, mentee, not that they were talking every day, but Johnson was his, uh, let's say, his foot, FDR's foot soldier, and then his foot corporal or his foot sergeant running a part of the New Deal in Texas in the 1930s. So you want to imagine a man who lands in the presidency by accident, but already knows what he wants to do. He wants to do bigger than everyone else, and he wants to do social democracy.
3: So. It's interesting, if we think about Johnson and and this point of him going bigger and bolder and maybe the Texas approach to federal policy, in the education space, that's particularly evident in my mind. If you look at basically from the beginning of the republic to more or less the 1940s, we had very little at all, really, uh, federal involvement in education policy. You see some blips here and there. And actually, in 1867, a federal Department of Education was created, but it was quickly demoted. A year later, it was demoted down to four guys collecting statistics across the country. So that was thankfully short-lived. You get a few other blips here and there. We get the GI Bill in 1944. You could argue, though, at that time, there's a national security imperative for the GI Bill. Returning service members uh, need support when they're returning home. So there is an argument there. And then the Eisenhower administration comes in, and of course it's October 1957, and the Soviets launched the first Earth-orbiting satellite in Sputnik, and this catalyzes the Eisenhower administration to leverage federal involvement to start spending additional federal funds on education programs, train more scientists, more mathematicians, and so I think even at this point you could argue, well, there is a legitimate function, right? National security is an enumerated power of the federal government, unlike education. So for training scientists and mathematicians, it's in the interest of national security. So we're leveraging federal involvement at that time to sort of fight this Cold War with the Soviets. But all of a sudden that changes when Johnson comes in. Johnson says, well, it's no longer you know, a war abroad with the Soviets that we're fighting. We're fighting a domestic war on poverty here at home. And that was a huge shift in how the federal government started interacting with education policy. So we get things like the federal Head Start program, which has been an utter failure by most objective measures. Uh, by the way, we've spent about $240 billion on Head Start since Johnson launched the Great Society. It employs about 265,000 adults today, despite having no impact on the children it's purported to serve. We had dramatic spending in K-12 education. We have spent $2 trillion just at the federal level, just on K-12 education since the Great Society launched. And of course, we have uh, spent trillions in higher education. Uh, well, we are at $1.6 trillion in outstanding student loan debt, spending hundreds of billions a year. So we get to this point because Johnson comes in and says, well, well, we'll underwrite student loans and grants. And yet that has grown. Your point about a little bit of socialism maybe morphs into a lot. Today, the federal government originates and services 90% of all student loans. So can you maybe speak a little bit to that? slippery slope. How did we originally get to the point where, under the great society, government started preferencing the public sector instead of the private sector? And what is our, in your opinion, maybe hope for unwinding that? Does history tell us something? Uh, well, how many, past?
2: thank you. Well, how, yeah. It's very important that Lindsay has written this out. These data points are necessary for arguments. Um, who's heard of Homer Hickam, October Sky? The movie October Sky, which is about the boy who became a rocket man, right? Uh, Homer Hickam has been tweeting the actual man about great society. And that surprised me. I'm honored about that. But he's now a grown-up senior uh, rocket scientist. Uh, but but what, that surprised me because the, the America of Homer Hickam, which is the America you described, when Homer Hickam won a prize for launching a rocket in high school, maybe in West Virginia, right yeah, yeah um, somewhere somewhere rural, somewhere in a coal mine right in a coal town, uh, in a high school where they didn't necessarily expect him to get an engineering degree right um, the the future was the government, so what do you do if you want to be a rocket man, you write to Werner von Braun right, <laughs> which he did you write and you get a scholarship to a good state school or maybe a good private school to study engineering, and then you go work for NASA or the Defense Department, or you serve, uh, Homer Hickam did serve um, in the military, and that's how you get forward. That was the Cold War period. We were in a a war in in the America that that Homer Hickam grew up in. Um, It was only in the 60s, even as Johnson expanded the government's federal government's education mandate that at the same time um, people in electronics and basically engineers and scientists realized you could actually make money without the government and you could actually have ideas without the the government government. government. because imagine um, what Fairchild right which became Intel the people at Fairchild became the leaders of Intel when they started in the 1960s uh, uh, late 50s, 1960s, California was just one big defense contractor. There was no idea that people could buy computers you made and play with them at home. That, that was a new thing. There was no fun phone, right? There was just you had a missile contractor part of one or not. And what Mr. Noyce and Mr. Moore discovered, even as they discovered the incredible productivity gains in, in chips, Moore's Law, they discovered, wait a minute, maybe we can sell what we make for consumer life for something more than just a consumer life is more sophisticated than just a dishwasher or, or, you know, uh, 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 so at the same time as the government is moving into education, intellect, the collective intellect is realizing we maybe don't need the government and, and the Homer Hickams of the world, I don't want to speak for him, are suddenly realizing, wait a minute, a lot of the fun and excitement and the true innovation is outside government, and, by the way, could be even absent government subsidy. So it's not as though it was all decided one way. There were there were epiphanies that led us in the other direction. It was a race between public and private, and private did pretty well in the 60s. Um, public assumed that private could always pay. That was the assumption. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith assumed that, and John Maynard Keynes, <coughs> excuse me, Once used an analogy, he said, well, don't think of business as the enemy, dear fellow government person, Franklin Roosevelt, president, sir. Think of of business as a domestic animal, like a cow that you herd or a bull that you herd. And if you treat it tolerably well, it will give you milk. That's what the private sector is—your milk cow—and you don't. If you vilify it, it won't behave, right? So be nice and give it nice hay, and you'll get the <laughs> revenue. And that was the assumption in the 60s as well. The so the private sector is there's milk cow for for the public sector, and it's all going to work out just fine. But we could talk about education as well. Well, I mean,
3: this, this the milk cows are actually a great segue into my next question, which is about the tragedy of the commons. So In your book, you refer to the tragedy of the commons. This is a phrase first coined by USC microbiologist Garrett Hardin, and Hardin explained it with a metaphor. And you write, you explain his metaphor in your book. You say, shepherds live by a rich common pasture. All want to graze sheep there, and all do, each driving as many sheep as he can into the common area without regard to the needs of the grass of the commons. Soon the grass is gone, and the sheep starve. Now, why that matters is because Hardin, probably like Harrington, said, well, what's, what's the answer to this tragedy of the commons? Oh, it's clearly government rationing. And so government, then, you write uh, in the 1960s, always ended up becoming the shepherd in that case. So if we think about government as shepherd, uh, what, in your opinion, has that done with regard to families, how families think about their relationship with the government, the private sector generally? But this whole idea of government as shepherd, is really fleshed out nicely in your book.
2: Yes, and the reason this metaphor is very important, the tragedy of the commons, it's a progressive metaphor. It's used a lot. There's a rebuttal to it. The rebuttal is private property. There are Nobel Prizes won on the rebuttal. I would consider one rebuttal winner Eleanor Oscar, who, who won writing about the community, because you know your own self. If you have a very good community, say a church community, The community will get together, or a town community, and make some decisions about the pasture, and the result will be the pasture um, thrives. That is, we have fallow years, we have fallow hours, whatever. Um, We manage our sheep, we have a co-op because we're a community or a business. A couple businesses can be in a community, too. But someone sort of has to own the property, whether it's the community or actually a company, uh, for the tragedy of the commons, which is really a tragedy of no one owning something, to be averted. Um, So that's just super important in terms of education. What all that spending did was create a tragedy of the commons at the local school. What is a local school? Um, Tocqueville wrote so beautifully about municipalities. A local school is a municipal event, a municipal construct. And he said municipalities are really fragile. He almost described Tocqueville municipalities like consumptive patients. They're about to keel over from tuberculosis at any moment. Anyone can take advantage of them, the county, the state, the federal government, but they do something precious, which is they construct the school they need. So um, I don't know if you've ever studied a successful school. One I'm thinking of that I always write about is St. Johnsbury in Vermont. St. Johnsbury is actually a proto-voucher school. It is a private school that was created before we talked about vouchers at a time in Vermont when there were, you had to go to boarding school because the people were so few and far between. They had to travel if they wanted to go to high school. And generally, the boarding schools were different denominations. Saint Johnsbury is Congregationalist. If you're Northern Baptist. You went to Ludlow to Black River Academy where the Baptists go, and so on. And the parents had strong views about this, so they wanted their kid to go to their denomination. Then um, the state of Vermont grew. It took high school became mandatory. And it began to pay per head to towns, just like a voucher. It was called tuitioning out. If you took your government money, which was originally from the town, and went to another school in Vermont, maybe even a boarding school far away. And that still sort of exists in Vermont in a small way. St. Jay is a wonderful school. It knows it's a boarding school. It has people who come from Asia. All the way to the United States to study there. It has a huge vocational element. Um, you good shop, good um, good um, practice retail as well. And it knows in St. Johnsbury, which is a troubled mill town in Vermont. It's not a rich town anymore. It knows well. We need a gym now. We don't need a French teacher. We need French. a gym or we need a French teacher, we don't need a gym, or we need funds to go over to Asia to get students, because actually schools like that will benefit from the foreign influx, including in terms of funds. People pay to come to the United States and learn English, and that helps the town, which lacks the tax revenues for a very big, developed school. Everyone wins in that situation. St. Jay knows. Who doesn't know? The state of Vermont. Who else doesn't know? The federal government. St. Jay knows what St. Jay needs. And once I wrote a monograph, basically, about this school, because I found it so useful as an example of what's right and what's wrong about education, the local community knows is the main thing. And what does um, 60, 70s spending do? Well, it, 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 it uh, kills off Tocqueville a thousand times. It kills off these local communities' um, projects by crowding out whatever the locality is doing with federal government money, often wrongly directed. And we should talk a little bit about Head Start, too. Yeah,
3: we we should. Um, I will say first, though, as a former French teacher, uh, I hope that they went with the French teacher and not the gymnasium uh, (laughs) at St. Jay. But we we should talk more about Head Start as well um, because Head Start is one of those instances where the government uh, really ended up favoring the butter instead of the guns. So in your book, you talk about the race with guns and butter, right? So the guns at the time representing the cost of the war with Vietnam and the butter representing the cost of the war on poverty and the domestic spending that was associated with all of those programs. Head Start is one of those programs I mentioned it a minute ago, but, you know, I, I think part of the failure, if you look at the research that the Department of Health and Human Services, which manages Head Start, which, by the way, was not by accident uh, when it was originally created as a small summer program in the summer of 65, but if you look at the research from HHS, which has done rigorous randomized control trial evaluations of the program, they have found that Head Start has had no impact on children's well-being, their social-emotional social- well-being, their access to health care, their parents' parenting practices, nothing that the original proponents of the program uh, had said would come to fruition. And yet again, we spend now $9 billion a year on the federal Head Start program. I mentioned a second ago we've spent $240 billion a year on that program since it was created. My take on its failure is that the failure is because it is so far removed from the families it is supposed to help. When you end up with uh, low-income children and programs that rely on a distant federal government to administer them, Um, they don't have the buy-in. When things go wrong, it's much more difficult to fix those programs. So I'd say that's probably at the root of the issue with Head Start. Um, So before you weigh weigh in on that, just one last question and then your comment on Head Start and then we'll throw it open to the audience. But um, you and I, I think, are both great fans of Calvin Coolidge. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Coolidge saw economy and government, by which he meant low taxes and fiscal responsibility as a moral issue, not just a financial issue. And he was able to lower taxes, reduce the federal deficit significantly during his administration. So here's my question, um, twofold, I suppose. How did we get from Coolidge to LBJ so quickly? And then off of that, can you tell us a little bit more about the Coolidge Foundation, uh, which as was mentioned earlier, you're the chair of the board of the Coolidge Foundation and and what you do today.
4: Uh,
2: The the answer, I'll answer the hard question first. The way we got from Coolidge to LVJ, and they were similar in that they both came into office when a president died. They're accidental presidents in a way, Um, is that we forgot, we're a casualty of our own success. Coolidge um, never had a deficit, he had surpluses, and he actually cut federal spending. And today when we're at the Heritage Foundation or elsewhere we talk about cutting federal spending, we tend to talk about reducing the rate of increase. He actually cut the number. You say, is that real, Amity, or is that nominal? It was both real and nominal. So, So he cut oh, how do he do that? Um, and there's a very interesting law, the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, give Warren Harding credit in this room as well, that was his law, which in- gave the executive more authority than it has today. And at the Coolidge Foundation, actually, we've had conferences with former um, CBO directors and OMB directors to talk about that. The executive basically had general oversight of the budget. So, Instead of having three children coming to you, each out making the great case for the car that they need for their job, you'd bring all three children in the room at once and you'd realize you only needed 1.5 cars <laughs> for, for your children to get to work. Like it rationalized the budget process from the point that law, from the point of view of the executive, which is very important and enabled him to cut. The other, um, so that's, that's very interesting. I will add that Coolidge um, talked a little about creating a Department of Education, but his vision was not huge, so he did commit that sin. They did it all right all had a, the time. Had a few words. <laughs> what the Coolidge Foundation does is try to elevate the memory of Calvin Coolidge and his value of federalism. He believed in states. He said, um, I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but he said basically, um, speaking of one state, when he was laying the Arizona state stone, uh, Arizona, the United States are inviolate only insofar as Arizona. Is inviolate. That is, we are, we are not a strong nation in this unless we truly recognize we are United States, not United, one being government in Washington. So that's the key thing about Calvin Coolidge. The other was his incredible restraint, which is perceived as weakness in the school books. Oh, he's just a footnote between Roosevelt and maybe Wilson, right? Uh, you know, he was incredibly strong. Sometimes saying no, which is what he did, is harder than saying yes. Every parent knows that right? When you say no, you have to be prepared. Why no, right? And so he was a regular maestro of the veto, uh, yet he had great love. What's interesting about Coolidge is you say when someone says no, they're, they're mean, right? That's the natural assumption. He had great love for the United States. He just believed um, the best way for the United States to be happy was through the small town. He did go to Black River, Academy, the Northern Baptist one, because his grandmother that had uh, was was a Baptist. She didn't approve of dancing, and uh, you know that was where he went. Then he went to Amherst College. What the Coolidge Foundation does is teach these things, and the main way we do it is through a college scholarship, which is a voucher itself, basically a golden voucher. Um, it, we cover all expenses to any university to which. The candidate is admitted. This is an academic merit scholarship, um, and we're very sad and fortunate because it's a, a true full ride, including um, room and board. Uh, we have this year over 3,000 candidates for four scholarships, and each of them writes two essays about Calvin Coolidge, including one about the budget. And I hope to publish their essays because they're so interesting. It's never going to be a big program. It's more like a Rhodes Scholarship. It's a high honor for academics. But we also have a program. Right away we realized all these kids are wonderful and we want to include as many as we can. Um, We also have a program called The Senators for the 96 um, in the top 100 who unfortunately don't win the big prize in an elaborate selection process. And The Senators also come to Washington Um, and learn all about government, and uh, visit us at Coolidge House, which is in Georgetown. Which is beautiful,
3: by the way. And have you done the grand opening yet?
2: Uh, We're kind of small now. We had a soft opening. I, I would be neglectful, though, if I didn't mention the ultimate headquarters, which is Plymouth Notch in Vermont, where we have an awesome 4th of July. That's the president's birthday. It's the only... (laughs) <laughs> President Coolidge was born on the 4th of July, uh, and uh, we have a naturalization ceremony. So, if anyone would like to bring his child or grandchild or come himself, to see a naturalization ceremony on the 4th of July, which is a very meaningful thing to do. It's a way of paying tribute to the United States. We welcome you, and we have staff there, and we'll help you to make your trip on the 4th of July to lovely Vermont. Okay. So nice. Head Start, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. The thing about Head Start for me is, is that it, it, I grew up in a place where Head Start was started. I'm from the South side of Chicago, my mother was involved in Head Start on the pro side, is that it sounds so innocuous. Who could be against nursery school? What kind of rat think would be against nursery school? <laughs> what kind of jerk? right? That was what I was raised with. What harm could nursery school be? But the thing about Head Start um, was that it wasn't merely nursery school. It was basically daycare, often, with all day, not two hours. right? Mm-hmm. And it came with social work, and it came with a lot of other programs and ideas. Uh, So nobody's against nursery school. Nobody's against helping poor people. The extent of this program, what the governors recognized, including John Connolly of Texas, who's in my book, um, was that this was the toe in the door, the camel's nose in the tent. You can pick whatever image you like of the federal government running all education. And indeed, you're right, Lindsay, with a certain vision of the family. The the mom has to work. Well, maybe the mom doesn't want to work. The mom should work. If she's poor, she should work. Um, So the kid has to be in school. Um, We've all taken a good look at all-day daycare. It works for some kids. It doesn't work for others. Uh, It's a long thing to be in daycare in a public place like a school when you're one years old or two years old, from eight to five, say. So that is a controversial choice, and the federal government was saying, this is what you should do. Um, And then there were some politics that came with it. Maybe they were teaching children's books that had a certain political direction. And if you're a federalist, um, if you're defending your state's rights, you say, wait a minute, Tocqueville said education is what the town does. So much money is coming in for a head start that my town is just giving up and saying, oh, we'll take this bribe. I want to mention one last thing, which is in my book about the civil rights movement. There was a genuine civil rights movement in the South. It was locals, and it was northerners. And they actually got a lot done. There were terrible problems. Only 1 in 10 blacks in Mississippi was registered to vote. That's a national problem, not just a state problem. But one of the things I noted when I was studying what happened in the South with the arrival of the Great Society to the Civil Rights Movement is the Civil Rights Movement didn't always like the Great Society. What they said specifically was the Great Society, the federal program in the name of civil rights, is crowding out the genuine civil rights movement. Blacks and whites who were working in the South said that. And one of the characters in my book is Robert Paris Moses. I don't know if any of you has heard of him, but he was a math teacher who who went to, I think, Hamilton, maybe Harvard for math, who taught in school. So he was a real grown-up when he went down to the South to work on civil rights, very brave. Um, And eventually he became disillusioned at the interventions of the Johnson administration, at its hypocrisy, And he kind of went sort of into seclusion. But later, he developed a program that won a MacArthur grant called the Algebra Project, where he basically said everyone who's poor, he was black, he is black, he focused on black, should learn algebra. I consider that a wonderful idea. I'd rather spend a trillion on algebra instruction than social work. (laughs) Uh, I believe every American, more or less, can do algebra. Um, so, so it's important to recognize that the actual civil rights workers were often very delusioned with a program ostensibly written entirely for the benefit of their project.
3: Well, I think we've got time for a couple of questions, probably two. Um, yes, ma'am, in the front here. If you could just wait on a mic to come around.
4: Thank you. Um, I'm 70, almost 78. I fought really hard in the Civil Rights Movement. I came out of complete poverty and child of the Holocaust. I love this country. Um, I obviously had great intentions. I joined the Students' Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I'm sure I'm still on record. And fought really hard for equal opportunity. I watched the Civil Rights Movement in New York devolve. into a nightmare of almost socialism, of giveaways as opposed to opportunity. And I walked away from it because I felt that I was part of evil. Then I took a job with Lyndon Johnson's uh, Great Society, uh, Job Corps, Youth Corps. I watched as a rural community was stuffed with money that made everything worse. So clearly, I, mean, I couldn't believe the lack of understanding of what that community needed, and I began to feel more and more guilty. I never was part of the women's movement because from the beginning, I saw that it was gonna steal my rights, not add to my rights. I'm one of these old ladies. I have grandchildren in their 20s. I had my own business. I'm one of these old ladies who lived it, seen it, and watched the destruction the disgusting, disgusting outcomes, and I'm very happy with my grandchildren and my husband, who have 58 years. But I have a great sorrow for my participation in making the world worse.
3: So, so on that, I guess. So the question then, um, unintended I really consequences. I
4: just, I've lived it. And, and, and what was your, What's your name? name, Uh Doris Eisen. We're glad I wish. To see. I really, really wish that all these young people. Could see what I saw. It was pretty creepy. Thank you for that. Thank Thank you.
3: Great. Well, we'll take uh, right over here in the middle. This will have to be our last question because of time. So if you can just hold on one second for the mic to come around. We do. Yes, and there'll be a lunch afterward. We'll talk talk about that in a sec. Yeah. I
1: I was struck by what you had to say about Calvin Coolidge and the humorous aspect. One of the, the concerns that I have with this movement of Elizabeth Warren and some of these others is that all of their socialism is predicated on helping people. There's this emotional component to it that if you don't go along with it, somehow you're this nasty, awful person that, you know, and for instance, you know, the, the latest push now is houses for the homeless without, you know, ever addressing the root cause of why they are homeless. It's like, it's easy to throw money at a problem and not really solve it. In your book, do you come to any kind of conclusion that could help those of us who are on the streets fighting for this kind of stuff to help us argue with that? Property rights. So
2: if it's a house for the homeless, is it really theirs or is it rental? So I believe in property rights. I would like to found, after the Coolidge Foundation, the Institute for Property, at a time when property is becoming a bad word, we need to stand up for it because the only way people truly can be emancipated, can sustain their majority, not be um, stuck in an in, 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 in infant life, is through property and, and property in a broad sense, which is you know yourself, where it originally comes from when you look back at the political economy of the phrase. So uh, it's fine to have houses for the homeless if the homeless understand the responsibility that goes with the ownership along with the benefit, right? Rights come with responsibilities. That's what I think we should emphasize, and that's honestly why I'm concerned with sort of new federalism and soft soft conservative gifts. They're, they're not much different from the great society. You know, if we say new federalism where we give money to empower people, I find empower a very troubling verb because people's power comes from themselves. It can only come from themselves. We cannot teach people, uh, grown-up people, how to be autonomous. That has to come from them. Of course, we have to you know, provide educational examples, but this has to come from their own souls. So, so I find basically a lot of conservative efforts, not to mention more progressive effort, deeply condescending to people.
3: Great. Well, I think we're going to welcome Michelle back up to the stage okay. and please join me in thanking Amity for her wonderful remarks.
0: What a great discussion. Thank you so much, ladies. Um, two great books. I've started Amity's, but I'm going to read them both cover to cover. And, you know, at the Center for Conservative Women, we work primarily with women in college and, and, and post-college. I'm going to recommend these books now, because to understand what's going on today with uh, Bernie and AOC and all their caring, they have to know this. I think they have to learn about the failures of the 60s when some of us oldsters lived. Um, and uh, I just want to thank you both so much. Um, I have some gifts for you, but I want to mention that we are going to sell the books. I'm uh, going to have some signatures, and we have a wonderful lunch out there. But first... First, I'll give the heritage gifts.
3: These <laughs> are. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Look
2: at these
3: beautiful
1: <laughs> <laughs> the oh, heritage Oh, heritage. Oh, I don't have a heritage scarf yet. <laughs> this is great. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> oh, so you. nice. So <gasps> for
3: the back.
2: It's real. Well,
3: beautiful. Oh, very nice. These <laughs> 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 heritage They're very, very
0: nice. And then from the <laughs> Claire Blue <laughs> Center for Conservative Women, we have. Oh, well, it's okay. oh great. There okay. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Saying. Thank you. Thank and you. this is our limited That's
3: edition great. coffee
0: oh. mug with her famous saying here. Mm. And yours is coming, Lindsay, by the way. Thank you. What is that? Courage
2: oh, is the ladder. Courage is the ladder on which all the other virtues mount. Right. Great. Courage to <laughs> talk about this. The students to <laughs> challenge the professor and your great. friends. The rest of
0: us in our lives as we can have to be great enough to stand up and argue with. Talk about the failures of the past in order to make today a be for our children and our grandchildren. Thank you again, ladies. Thank you all very much. A wonderful lunch and books outside.
2: <laughs> That's so pretty. I like your colors
3: better. You must switch?